Hello, my name is David Adess and uh, I run a poetry reading series in Sydney uh, called Poets Corner in conjunction with Westwords. Uh, and um, we have moved to a digital format since uh, the onset of COVID, which is nice in some ways because it enables me to get poets from further afield than just local poets. Just a bit of background about Westwords. Westwards is Western Sydney's literature development organisation. Poets Corner is part of Westwards public programming that celebrates the richness, diversity and insight literature offers. Especially in these times, we thank the ongoing support of Create New South Wales, the Cultural Fund of Copyright Australia, City of Parramatta Council, Blacktown City Council and Campbelltown City Council, as well as the many project partners that have enabled us to continue to provide opportunities to writers and audiences. We hope that this new world will see us sharing and a closeness of spirit. So each month I invite a poet to read poems and talk about them for an hour or so on a theme of the poet's choice. Um, today, um, I've invited Jeff Goodfellow, who will be talking on the theme and reading on the theme of working class lives. Um, but before I introduce Jeff, just a quick acknowledgement of country. I'm recording this from my home in Beecroft, Sydney. And Jeff, whom I will introduce in a moment, is recording from his home in Semaphore near Adelaide in South Australia. I'd like to pay my respects to and acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging, of the Wallamida people, the traditional custodians of the land in Beecroft, and also the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, the traditional custodians of the land on the Adelaide Plains, and to acknowledge also that their land has never been ceded or given up. Welcome, Jeff. Hi there. It's good to have you on. Um, I'm just going to give you a bit of an intro. Disorganised today. Uh, so, Jeff has established a reputation for giving voice to a wide range of people who wouldn't normally be the subjects of poetry or prose. He left school at 15 and began to write in 1982 at the age of 33. He had worked for many years in semi-skilled occupations. In February 2008, Jeff was diagnosed with cancer of the throat and told he had one to five years to live. Jeff continues happily to defy the odds. In 2011, he published Waltzing with Jack Dancer, A Slow Dance with Cancer through Wakeful Press. His first collection of poetry, No Collars, No Cuffs, was launched at Adelaide Writers Week in 1986 and has been reprinted nine times. 10 books have followed. An 11th book, his first book of short stories, Out of Copley Street, will be launched later this year. Uh, Jeff has worked as a writer in residence in school, jails, youth detention centres, drug and alcohol rehabilitation units, building and construction sites, factories and madhouses, as well as in universities in Australia and overseas. And there is much more to the bio that I won't go into, but I will say that um, you can engage with Jeff's work through his website at www.jeffgoodfellow.com. And it's a, it's a wonderful website, I recommend it to you. As I mentioned, uh, Jeff has selected as his theme for Poets Corner, Working Class Lives. Welcome, Jeff, again. Um, in your author's introduction to 
opening the windows to catch the sea breeze, which is your selected poems, 1983 to 2011, you give a brief account of your working class yep. background, your early life, uh, how you yeah. left school at 15, um, and so on, until, as you put it, by the time you were 33, your body had started to break down. At that point... Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I think that that's for many working class people. And the reason that I gave that introduction is so people can see where the poetry is actually coming from. Yeah, well, uh, I would have said that at that point, you would have been an unlikely poet. Um, you hadn't had any engagement with poetry. So what happened? Nothing at all, no. How did, how, did, how, did, how, did it come to, how did it come to pass that poetry happened? Uh, well, I was crawling, crawling around the floor on my hands and knees, unable to walk, and I crawled over a book that my son, who was in year 10, had been reading at school, and I picked it up and looked at it and thought, poetry, I'm too tough to read poetry. And then I thought, well, no one will see me, I'll read it. So I took it to bed, read it from cover to cover and engaged with it and read it a second time and thought, well, if I'm going to be stuck in bed, you know, maybe I could write this sort of stuff myself. And I thought, uh, I was reading Band the collected works of Banjo Patterson and I thought people don't uh, live the same sort of life in Australia now that they did in Banjo Patterson's day. So. I thought they, they come out of hotels, they don't jump on a horse, they jump on a Harley Davidson around a V8 Commodore, <laughs> take off. And you know, I thought I've got to make it more contemporary. Uh, so I started to make that shift. Initially I wrote dreadful rhyming verse poetry, but I went along to the Friendly Street Poets in Adelaide and got uh, thoroughly embarrassed and humiliated and scorned upon for writing that sort of stuff. And I realized that if, uh, if I want to get published, I need to write free verse poetry. So I, I made the, uh, the shift to free verse poems. And the very first free verse poem I wrote, uh, which I had published in um, uh, um, my selected works, was published first in uh, Ash magazine. Rosie Jones uh, tapped me on the shoulder at Friendly Street one night and said, I'd like that poem for our next magazine. And I was published in... Uh, in Ash in spring of 1983. And after getting uh, one poem published, I thought I can get 100 poems published. I didn't realise how difficult it was going to be, uh, but I've been uh, at it since then, and uh, I've, I've managed to publish a number of books. Yeah, from little things, big things grow, they say. That's right, yeah, yeah. Now, um, you not only write about uh, people from, I guess, the working class lives, um, but it's almost like you target them as your audience as well, that you go and... Exactly, yeah. I've, it's always been my job. I've, I've looked at poetry as a job and I've always looked at wanting to extend the audience and take... I'm not interested in going to poetry readings. I, I don't really attend very many poetry readings at all um, uh, because I want to read to an audience of people who wouldn't ordinarily hear poetry. I've always, I've been about trying to extend the audience for poetry ever since I started. So I ran, you know, readings in suburban hotels when I started. I went to workers' clubs and, and then to factories and building sites and places where you wouldn't normally expect to hear poetry. And I'm not really interested in going to a poetry reading and reading to 20 people who are all waiting for their turn before they can go home with their girlfriend and, you know, the last person reads to... To their family and that's it you know like um 
I've seen poetry as an act of communication too. And, you know, if you look at uh, uh, The Weekend Australian, for instance, the Sarah Holland Bat poetry page that's in The Weekend Australian, it started off, um, you know, several weeks ago, uh, giving examples of poetry that, you know, the average punter could understand. But uh, the last few weeks, it, it's just it's just got progressively deeper and deeper and deeper so that it's the type of poetry that um, that the average punter looks at and thinks, well, I won't worry about poetry anymore. You know, th th those people shut the market down for poetry uh, in my book. Yeah. Uh, I see poetry as an act of communication and, and they're quite the opposite. But how did you start? I mean, where did you get the confidence to go out and start doing that when you'd sort of, you're a novice poet and you've just had a poem published and off you go? I'm five foot seven and a half. I was never scared of anyone six foot two. You know, <laughs> I don't lack confidence. I don't, I was brought up to be confident, to be confident in my ability. And I never, never had a, a lack of uh, confidence being able to step up. All right. Well, we better get on to some poetry, I suppose. Uh, I reckon. You've selected eight poems to read today from seven of your books. So it's like going to be, you're going to be a bit of a tour guide for us, for some of your yeah. books. Um, the title of your selected um, poems, Opening the Windows to Catch the Sea Breeze, comes from the first poem you've chosen to read, The Seventh Doctor. Yeah. Uh, the Seventh Doctor is uh, a poem, the, the, the initial anchor poem that I wrote to the collection Waltzing with Jack Dancer. And uh, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I had enormous amount of difficulties with, uh, with doctors. I eventually uh, got a surgeon who couldn't believe how I'd been treated by doctors. He knew who I was. He said, my kids have brought your books home from school. He said, I think what you should be doing is writing about the way that you've been treated so that you can uh, uh, give a warning to other working class people of what they're likely to expect. So here's the warning, tune in. The seventh doctor. The first doctor I saw was my local GP. He said I had the flu and the lump in my neck was bunched up muscle. He told me to go home, drink plenty of water and eat Panadine Forte and Valium. I saw him again five days later and told him I'd hardly slept. He sent me home once more and told me to add sleeping tablets to the mix. Two days later, when I was dangerously dizzy, like Dad when he was drunk and disorderly, I drove myself to the public hospital. Some people said to me I was silly and should have called an ambulance. But I'm not the ambulance fund. I didn't have money for a taxi. And I'm an independent bastard too. After near sideswipe to a neighbour's car just 100 metres from home, I sat up pretty quick, thinking of, a, thinking of the thickness of a coat of paint, and I rolled the windows down and caught the breeze. It was a slow 5k drive. After a few minutes in the emergency waiting room, I thought I was going to fall off the chair, so I asked to lie on a stretcher. A man with a grey flecked beard came across and spoke. He said they were reserved for sick people, I should stay in my chair. I told him he'd be sick if he didn't wheel the stretcher over for me now. After I'd lain down, he leaned over me and said, you'll have to get off it if someone comes who really needs it. I suggested be, uh, better be able to fight if he thought I'd be getting off. It only took another five hours, I was moved in to see the second doctor. When he saw how awkward I was and noticed how long it took me to sit upright and saw I hadn't shaved for a week and heard my slurred speech, he folded his arms and told me to go home, have a sleep and go back and see that first doctor. I told him to get fucked. 
met his eyes and said if he didn't look at me properly, I'd spread him over the floor. After looking at Phil, he sent me for a CAT scan. When I returned, he said, I've called in a specialist. You might have to wait for an hour or so because he's coming from another hospital. When I saw the third doctor, he said, you are very sick. You have an inspected abscess and it's very close to the voice box. You'll need to go to a bed upstairs. You may need an operation in the morning. When they got me installed upstairs, I saw the fourth doctor. He said, you'd better prepare yourself. This could be the big C. I thought I really met the big C when I saw that second doctor. In the morning, I met the fifth doctor, a woman, who one day later told me I did have cancer. But the way she told me made me think she was the big C. The lady doctor told me to go home. She said they'd bring me the time to go to another hospital to see another doctor. After a week where no one had rung, I rang the hospital. I spoke to a sixth doctor who told me they never said they'd ring me. He said I was confused. I should wait on a phone call or a letter. I told the sixth doctor maybe he was confused. I said I remembered what I'd been told. He said, no, you are confused. We will tell you when we want to see you and we'll do that by letter or phone, whatever suits us best. If you don't like it, you know what you can do. You can go private and call a tune and have doctors suit your timetable. I reminded the sixth doctor I was a public patient and had no private cover, but I told him too I was an old fashioned bloke. I said, I'll keep an eye on letterbox and near out for the phone, but I'll go outside every hour and check the roof for homing pigeons. So feel free to send instructions by carrier pigeon. I've got a long ladder and a 17 foot high wall and I feel quite confident I can climb the ladder, open up the metal band and retrieve any messages you might like to send. I'm happy to use the old technology or the new. I'll leave it up to you. The sixth doctor suggested we end the call. With respect, I said, maybe I'm confused and I don't really have cancer. Can you confirm that I actually do have cancer? Yes, he replied, you do. And can you confirm I did have an ultrasound examination? Yes, he replied, you did. And while I freely admit I don't have much medical knowledge, I do have a good understanding of the nuances of language and speech. And I do believe when the ultrasound was carried out, there was a good deal of surprise in the voices of the five or six people behind me in that darkened room. Would you agree on that point? Yes, he replied, I agree. And while I don't appear pedantic, would you agree that four or perhaps even five biopsy samples were removed during that examination? I'm sure I do remember the pull on the flesh. And I'm hurt, sure I, I'm sure I heard instructions on how deep to go. 1.5 centimetres, 2 centimetres, etc, etc. I mean, I won't argue on the number of biopsies or the depth of the needles. It's the procedure I'm referring to. Would you agree that I did, in fact, have several biopsy samples taken? Yes, he replied, I agree. Well, thank you, I said. I'll keep an eye on letterbox, an ear out for the phone, and I'll check the roof hourly. Thank you, doctor, for your decency, your humanity, and your kindness. And we both hung up. <laughs> After a few more weeks, got to meet the seventh doctor, a surgeon, a decent bloke who showed me decency and got it in return. He explained my condition in a language I could understand. His handshake was as solid as his eye contact, and I liked his style. The seventh doctor had me lie on the operating table for a biopsy on my tongue because they couldn't locate my primary. The cancer in my neck was a secondary. On the day of the op, he and his team all wore blue overalls, white gum boots, caps, 
and masks. They looked like concrete finishes on a building site, but their hands were soft and their vowels were rounded. Before I was sent off to sleep, the seventh doctor taught me about painting and Robert Hannaford and poetry and art as therapy. He sure didn't sound like a concrete finisher. When I awoke, I was put into a ward of other old men who coughed all night and kept one another awake. And when the screen curtains were drawn in the morning, I asked a man alongside him if he'd like a Rothman's plane. In his morning haze, he couldn't fathom my joke. Later that morning, I met a tribe of surgical doctors who told me to go home. My results would take five days to process. But at six o'clock that night, I had to go back. The abscess had started to swell again, and I met Dr. Eight. He arranged my readmission. I was given a different bed in the same ward and dripped with antibiotics. When I awoke in the morning, my chin was a mass of sores and my bottom lip looked like it had been pumped with Botox. Doctors nine and 10 came to see me after I asked the nurse to get me a doctor, but they were completely baffled. They didn't seem to be much older than my teenage daughter. And when they started mentioning the possibility of a staph infection, the nurse looked really alarmed. Dr. Nine suggested to Dr. 10, they should go and look in their books to see if they could identify the problem. When they left, I told the nurse, I'd like to see a grown up doctor. I was scared and so was she. When she came back with Dr. Levin, she told him she'd like to move me from the ward to a private room. Dr. Levin said he didn't deem that necessary. He suggested it was maybe school sores. I suggested it might be cold sores, but Dr. Levin couldn't agree. I said I wanted to see a specialist. It was a teaching hospital and they must have someone capable of an accurate diagnosis. By the time Dr. 12 arrived, the nurse had panicked to move me to a private room. I repeated to Dr. 12 I thought I might be cold sores due to stress, but he couldn't agree either. The following morning, a tribe of surgical doctors looked at me and no one seemed too sure. It was then that Dr. 13 came to my bedside and cut the heads off some of the pustules and swabbed me. Days later, when the results finally arrived, the spread had really increased and the lip grown larger. And I did in fact have cold sores, but they called it herpes simplex virus. Two days later, they sent me home with a bottle of Condi's crystals and packets of antiviral tabs. About two weeks further down the track, I met Dr. 14, a dental doctor. The split corners of my mouth were still healing, but she needed to inspect my gums and teeth before my neck dissection the next day. I asked to be careful, said I didn't have a big mouth. Although I'm sure some doctors and others would dispute that. But she treated me with care, stating that I did have a small opening. And though I enjoy puns, I said nothing. Her advice was to get a tube of Dactarin cream and use it overnight. But more importantly, to smear it over the corners of my mouth just prior to the operation. She said it would be likely to stop any cold sores from coming back. And she was right. That next morning, I saw Dr. Seven again in the same operating theater. He had his tribe of surgical doctors to back him up along with two anesthetists and a few nurses. As I was wheeled in, my eyes scanned for familiar faces. Dr. Rate was smiling broadly, so I winked at him. He understood my style and his smile broadened. A couple of days later, Dr. Rate told me the surgical team had read some of my poetry aloud as I was going off. That was Dr. Seven's idea. Dr. Eight said they'd stop because some of the lines seemed a little uh, rated. He said that after some of my lines were read, he remembered hearing me read when he was a teenager at St. Peter's College. 
I remarked that it must have been during Ray Stanley's reign when the school was a bit more liberal and more than just one voice was heard. He laughed at that and I laughed too. I wasn't laughing when I woke up from the neck dissection though. It was 5.20pm when I saw the clock in the intensive care unit and I was feeling cranky, squinting, wondering where my glasses were and trying to calculate how long I'd been lying there. And did they know I was awake? At 7.30, they wheeled me back to the ward, the same one I've been in before, but again, a different birth. And there to greet me is my girlfriend and my youngest son, Paul. We counted backwards and calculated it must have been a long operation. They said the wound looked like I'd been carved up with a broken flag and they said a bottle would have been far too small. They said it looked scary. And because I couldn't see what my visitors saw, I asked the nurse for a mirror. It scared me too. By 9pm though, I was asking for food, as much to my own surprise as that of my visitors, but the swallowing wasn't fun. Dr. Seven had cut me from the bottom of my left earlobe to the top of my collarbone, then curled around and up to my Adam's apple. It was a cut as big as a bailing hook, and with its 30 metal staples, it looked almost as shiny and nearly as dangerous. He performed his surgery on Holy Thursday, 20th of March, 2008, and with the neck muscle removed, he'd left a hole but he'd taken the tumour too, intact we hope. And with two previous infections, it had been quite a messy job. He was back at my bedside on Good Friday morning, away from his own four kids, explained that I'd gone through the easy part of the treatment, that the chemo and the radiation would have come in about six weeks after the wounded healed. He told me to go home and get in the full cream milk, the banana smoothies, all the chocolate I could eat, and anything else that took my fancy and was fattening to get some weight on because I'd sure as hell get it stripped off in six weeks' time. He told me too that my voice box had been welded to the tumour, that he'd had to cut it free, and there'd been some nerve damage and my voice mightn't improve a lot on what I had at that point. But I was still talking and I was still listening, grateful to have Dr Seven on my side. It was a good Friday to get that news. I lay in bed eating Easter eggs, silver paper and cellophane surrounding me chocolate sliding down my throat. So that's the seventh doctor. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an experience that I suppose a lot of people have had with the hospital system, the impersonality of it, but why do you think the seventh doctor thought that it was a particular working class experience? Uh, because he had working class roots, as it turned out, and, and we had that discussion sometime later. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to put up with that sort of rubbish. Uh, he said, everyone deserves to be looked after properly. And uh, he encouraged me to write, but he, his grandfather had been a miner. Uh, so he had those, he said, you know, I mightn't have lived a working class life, but he said, I've seen where working class people come from. And he said, I've, I've seen the, the pain that my family have had to suffer in the past. And he said, I can you know, assure you that you are going to get the same treatment as anyone would get that was loaded. <laughs> and the next poem is from a, another book, uh, The Violence of Work from Punch On, Punch Off. Poems for the employed, the unemployed and the underemployed. That's right. Um, the Violence of Work. And I, when I, I wrote this poem, thinking of the rhythm of how the factory worked and and um, I, I thought also of the connection between the way that work is organised and um, 
that uh, the committing of domestic violence occurs. So here's the poem, The Violence of Work. I work at a factory Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I work a rotating roster Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I wear earmuffs and gloves Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I stamp on a press Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I slid my fingers last Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I work on a telly Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I'm told to work faster Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I smoke a billy Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I play euchre at lunchtime Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I just do my best Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I'm paid the award for Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I don't complain to the boss Monday to Friday, punch on, punch off. I complain to my partner Monday to Sunday, want to punch on, punch on. Well, that was written uh, what, 20 years ago, maybe more. Yep. Was domestic violence a taboo at the time? Were you trying to break through? I was talking to men on uh, building sites uh, about domestic violence and um, and I think they were breakthrough conversations. No one talked about domestic violence much then. And Martin Flanagan uh, came onto a building site in Melbourne and uh, one morning and I was reading uh, a poem about my sister called Palm for Annie. Uh, my sister has been a victim of massive domestic violence and some bloke heckled me halfway through the poem and uh, I finished the poem and then I turned back to the bloke and I pointed him out and I said, listen, mate, when you go home tonight, I said, let her off the hook. Don't belt her. Give her a night off. And, you know, 250 blokes put their hands together and applauded me. And this, um, this poem has been studied by work education students. How did that come about? Uh, well, a lot of my, um, the, the particular book that that came from, um, uh, uh, Punch On, Punch Off, is the, the title of the book. 5,000 copies of that book has sold. So there are a lot of class sets in schools around Australia. And, uh, you know, someone that has uh, been sympathetic to, to my writing has picked it up and, and run with it and included it. Hmm. Um, your next poem is um, It All Happened in Copley Street. Uh, yeah, Copley Street is a street that I grew up in, uh, in the inner northern suburbs of Adelaide. And uh, there's references that some people might find difficult, like bodgies and widgies. Uh, they were the street gangs of the day. You know, I was a bodgie, I had a grease ball hairdo, and you know. <clears throat> In South Australia, they had the anti-larrikin squad, so a special branch of the police force, big coppers, coppers that were six foot three to, to six foot seven, uh, plainclothes coppers, and the anti-larrikin squad was set up by uh, the government, by the Liberal government, to uh, stamp out Bodgy and Widgee gangs. And, you know, they'd drag you down a lane way and give you a bit of a whack, and, you know, they wouldn't worry about writing down your name and address and details. They knew that anyway. In the... In my childhood, we had a, a, a Liberal government, um, uh, state and, and Commonwealth. So we had uh, Sir Robert Menzies uh, as our uh, dear Liberal leader. 
and Sir Thomas Playford in South Australia as our Liberal Premier. But we were brought up not to, uh, to give respect to people that were knighted anyway, so um, Sir, um, uh, Sir Robert Menzies was always referred to us or by us as uh, Pig Iron Bob because he sold, sold a lot of scrap metal to the Japanese which came back at the Australians during the Second World War in the form of bombs. And Sir Thomas Playford, we didn't mind him quite as much. Um, we referred to him as Honest Tom. Also, uh, you know, that era was the uh, uh, McCarthyist era. And, you know, you were told in the media all the time to beware of reds under the beds. Well, one of my brothers was a member of the Merchant Navy. So uh, he was a, <laughs> um, a member uh, of a union and, you know, he was reading books that were written by communists and we didn't have reds under our beds we had reds on our beds when he came home so um just bringing that sort of thing into play shrapnel also is mentioned in the poem and shrapnel small metal fragments of a bomb but a lot of young younger kids don't they're not aware of those sorts of uh, terms now here's the poem it all happened in copley street i grew up in the 50s in copley street at broadview and up until my youth I'm sure that I had tunnel vision, thinking each and every street and suburb must have been the same. I lived with my mum and dad, my sister and two brothers, in a red brick house with a tiled roof and a paling fence. In fact, everyone in Copley Street had a red brick house with a tiled roof and a paling fence. Not to mention medals that got pinned to proud chests on Anzac Day. And everyone in Copley Street had a war service home and a war service loan that ran at four and a half percent and most would put their hands up to show an even lower interest in the Liberal governments of the day. And most, although perhaps not all, paid dearly over time to qualify for that rate. In our household, we learned early on about Pig Iron Bob and about how, how things come back to haunt us. And Honest Tom too. We knew how he looked after us, gave all us kids a bottle of lukewarm milk to drink each day for fronting up to school. Weren't we lucky? And weren't our teachers lucky too? Lucky to have less than 40 to a class. Yeah, and even then we knew our class. And not just from the sour milk in the summer. Back in Copley Street, we had reds on our beds and nothing to hide. We had nowhere to go. Yeah, that was back in the good old days. Stuck out the northern suburbs on a quarter acre block with an unmade road and piss poor public transport. Yeah, they were the days. They were the good old days. Days when your old man could still show you what a shrapnel scar looked like, or even let you feel a bit that they'd missed. Or nights when your old man wakes screaming and raging, when you took cover under the blankets and Vietnam still to come. Wasn't that something to look forward to? Yeah, the good old days. Those days when you'd either swelter or freeze in those outmoded temporary classrooms at the local tech, where half your teachers wore RSL badges and were just as neurotic as most of your fathers and keen as mustard to punch on them in the classroom or try to pin to the wall of the woodwork room with a chisel or nail you with a flying mallet. <laughs> they were the days. Ah, the good old days. When you left school at 15, undereducated yet still knowing too much, going out the big wide world with brill cream in your hair, strutting your stuff in your stovepipe pants and your pointy shoes, your shirt collar turned up to overstate your politics, only to get dragged down a laneway and belted by the anti-Larrigan squad because Honest Tom said he'd had the police clean up all the bodgies and witches. <laughs> they were the days. 
It was always a class act, the way those coppers worked. <laughs> yeah, they were the days. Most of those red brick houses have been painted now. Their tiled roofs resprayed too. And the paling fences went long ago. Helped along by kids who made them in the makeshift guns to play their war games with before they knew. Most of those original men from Copley Street are dead now, and some of the women too. And those who are left grow old and frail. When things get tough for me today, I think back to the good old days, and I always look forward to tomorrow. Well, that's uh, a long time ago now, but it still seems to be propelling you forward. It, it is, yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you think it was something that you had to overcome that, that childhood, that background, or was it something that just gave you strength and resilience? Oh, it definitely gave me strength and formed who I am. You know, like I, I am who I am by virtue of my, my childhood. I might have had a traumatic, uh, yeah, I'm, I had a traumatic childhood. I don't think I had a traumatic childhood. I did have a traumatic childhood. You know, I used to tie my father up when I was 12 years of age to stop the house being smashed to pieces, you know. Um, I had a, a, a life of trauma. Hmm. So, yeah, poetry allows me to, to uh, uh, write about it, talk about it, uh, understand it, and recognise that there are plenty of people out there right now today that are suffering that same sort of trauma. And poetry can be a mechanism for them so they don't go around, you know, damaging other people and damaging, further damaging themselves. I think poetry can be a way through for them. Yeah. Poetry as therapy or just as, as, a, as a, a means to connect? Well, a, a, a bit of both, really. Uh, to, to understand, it, to, to write poetry, you've got to think about things from two sides. You've got to see two sides of the coin. So you've got to see it from the point of view of where your suffering has come from and get an understanding of that too. So, you know, it, it broadens you. Mm. And you've, you, you've selected as your next poem, um, a love poem. Yeah, uh, because I'm, I'm not just angry, red-faced Jeff. I mean, I'm angry, red-faced Jeff a fair bit of the time. <laughs> but, you know, I can be soft and sexy Jeff too, you know, like I'm a, a complex character. I'm a number of different people. I'm not just one person. Yeah, yeah, well, I contain multitudes was... Uh, yeah. Right? Uh, so here's a poem, Reminders, which I, uh, I wrote... <clears throat> about a girl I was going out with in the early 1990s. Reminders. You left several strands of hair scattered across my sheets. You left your yellow toothbrush on the top shelf of my bathroom cabinet. You left your white lacy G-string in the pocket of my bathrobe. You left your pink lip gloss with the glitter on my dressing table. You left my alarm clock set at 6.45 a.m. You left your new novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez unread. We both left so much unsaid. But most of all, you left your scent buried deep inside my pillow. And even though it's been six nights now and I've changed the bed linen, rearranged the bathroom cabinet and the dressing table, placed your book in my bookcase, Thrown out your G-string, your lip gloss, and your yellow toothbrush. Your scent is make my eyes watery. And still, 
I can't escape you. Uh, the poem is kind of an embodiment of the, the, uh, the phrase that you use there, we left so much unsaid. Yeah, yeah. Because the poem actually doesn't tell you anything about the relationship in a way. Um, it just tells you about the effects of yeah. the uh, You've got uh, another poem from another book, Swanston Street from No Ticket, No Start. Poetry from the yeah. I read this poem uh, early one morning. Uh, I started a poem in Swanson Street at a at a coffee shop, and um, well, I, no, in Ligon Street. I started to write the poem in Ligon Street after getting up earlier that morning and going out onto Swanson Street to be picked up by Union official to go to various sites and read and um, the, the following day I uh, uh, that evening so I was on the, on the street very early in the morning and then that evening going home at sort of dusk I was running into building workers who were calling out to me and grouse stuff mate love that you know you're our man come back to our side again mate beautiful and, and I thought they've gone to work you know, in the dark, they're going home in the dark, and oh, what a shit of a, what a shit of a life, you know. Like, so here's the poem, Swanson Street. The dawn patrol is on the march down Swanson Street, up Swanson Street, and well before the sun comes up, the men are up to Swanson Street, to Swanson Street, and some of slow spirit levels up like rifles set to go to war, but most have got their spirits up and march on past the early opener door in Swanson Street, in Swanson Street. In single file and two abreast, they march in step on Swanson Street, on Swanson Street. They share no words, they know the drill, and whipped by wind, they lug their tools, and touched by frost, they feel the chill. Three winters ritual battle drill in Swanson Street, in Swanson Street. Wearing bluey jackets and beanie hats, and still cap boots, they march flat chat with bags in hand, no ticket, no start. They know to go, they've earned a start on Swanson Street, on Swanson Street. They nod the gateman, he asks no more. The hoistman's told they bark their floor and trapped in a tower where noise repeats, no sound comes in, no echo retreats. And there they toil the 10 hour day and nurse their aches and earn their pay and a knock off time. They shuffle away down Swanson Street, up Swanson Street. They share no words. Yeah. Is that, is that, do you think that's camaraderie or do you think that's a kind of oppressive silence in that workplace? It's uh, the nature of the job that, you know, you can't speak much um, uh, because there's so much noise surrounding you and, and when you do talk, you talk about things that, um, like, uh, you know, you're pleased that Collingwood got their ass kicked or that, uh, that you know, the sons are having a, a good year or, or whatever, uh, or about whatever horse won the third race. Uh, you're not talking about uh, issues of your family, your children, uh, your married life. You know, none of that is spoken about. You give nothing of yourself away other than 
you know, maybe a, <clears throat> the fight that's going to be on on Friday night at you know, South Sydney Leeds Club or whatever, you know. Um, so it is that sort of very silent, macho workplace, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Do we still have that? Is it still? Oh, I think so. I don't think there's any doubt that we do. Not to the degree we did, perhaps. Uh, manufacturing's kind of disappeared, and well, we've got no manufacturing. Yeah, that's that's history now. Uh, so, uh, but uh, you know, as far as building workers uh, are concerned, it's still you know uh, noisy work. You have to talk, but you're talking about you know, give us another. Uh, uh, a battery pack or you know like yeah uh, get that beam up in that corner you know cut a hole through the drip rock for this electrical cable um you know it's work related language yep and and um your next poem uh is uh, don't call me lad from both that's right so a very early poem but it's been one of my well, it's my signature poem in, in many respects. And uh, I wrote this when I was in my early 30s. My, my uh, kids used to say to me, you won't be reading that when you're 50. And here I am at 70 and uh, still loving it, you know. So, um, but I think it's just as valid today as it was when I first wrote it. Uh, I think, you know, there are, there's a lot of tension in families between fathers and sons. and, and um, this is uh, written from my own life, but also uh, my interactions with my sons, but my interactions too with other people's sons that I was seeing in juvenile detention centres and, uh, and schools where kids didn't want to really be and were in bad boys' classes that I was uh, going in to, to talk to and getting their stories. So. This is a voice of an aggressive, antagonistic 18-year-old male. Don't call me lad. Don't call me lad, Dad. Just don't call me lad. Got my hair on my balls, Dad. Then you've got or had. I'm 18 years old, man, and I'll sink or I'll swim. Just don't call me lad, Dad. My name is James, Fortress Jim. And now that I vote, Dad, my party is green. Get away with those flags, Dad. Red and blue are both mean. You can roll up your sleeves, Dad, and die. You can rant lay guilt trips, but I'll spit in your eye. Yeah, I grow some plants, Dad, but I'm keeping it cool. For it's not a plantation, I'm not such a fool. I just can't find a job, Dad. Year 12 is a waste. Two friends have just died, Dad. Too much of a taste. Yeah, I get the doll, Dad, though it don't do much good. But don't call me lad, Dad. I'd work if I could. Now I'm mellowing out, man. This homegrown is just wild. So don't call me lad, Dad. I'm no longer a child. So don't call me lad, Dad. I'm no longer a child. So your son likes that one? Yeah, yeah, loved him. <laughs> they still like it too. <laughs> Did those same conversations ha happen between you and them? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some things are timeless. Yeah, my grandchildren love it too. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> All right, so we've got one more poem um, from Waltzing with Jack Dancer, An Uncertain Future. Yeah, <clears throat> we have, um, there was another one in the mix too that you've slipped yeah. by. Oh, I missed one. Oh, let's go back to that, sorry. Semi I don't know how we're going for time because that is the 
let's go back to that one. I wanted to ask you about that one. So semaphore. Semaphore. Yeah, well, semaphore is, um, uh, I've lived in the suburb of semaphore most of my adult life. Um, I first came to semaphore at about age 18 with my first bride. And uh, I've lived with many brides in many different parts of semaphore. I love semaphore. It's a beautiful spot, you know, it's uh, madness and sanity. Uh, there's, uh, it's a, uh, an unusual suburb. There are a lot of big old houses that have been turned over and made into um, halfway houses for, for people that are doing it pretty dusty. Uh, so you've got a lot of people down here with uh, schizophrenia, uh, manic depression, uh, uh, acquired brain injury. Uh, but you've got a lot of wealthy people too. So you know, you've got a strange mix of, of, of people. You've got uh, uh, league footballers that will sit on Semaphore Road sipping lattes and you'll have other people wandering down Semaphore Road putting their hand out asking for 20 cents or $2 or whatever. Um, also, Semaphore had the biggest, uh, when I wrote this poem, had the biggest population of lesbians anywhere in Australia. Uh, but, you know, they were divided too. The lipstick lesbians didn't talk to the diesel dykes and vice versa. So it was interesting to see the sexual politics at work. And I thought, as much as I've lived here most of my life, I've never written about it. So this is a, a, a love poem to the suburb of Semaphore. Semaphore, you're so full of bad taste. You've half convinced me a good taste. But I love your semaphore. You have a main street that wanders down to the sea like a good old-fashioned country town. Maybe you are a country town, semaphore, lost on the outskirts of a city. But semaphore, don't be embarrassed. You are the only suburb in the city where people can still shop in their pyjamas without being gigged. Semaphore, you are so unpretentious, so upfront honest, that at times you delight me. Semaphore, you're all larrikins in character. If you're not a manic depressive or a schizophrenic, if you're not a liberal, a labor, a pink or a greenie, if you're not a lesbian separatist feminist, a lipstick lesbian or a builder's labor, if you're not a Rolls Royce driver or a Kingswood owner, if you're not a Catholic, an Anglican, a Pentecost or an agnostic, if you're not a renter or an owner, if you're not a yuppie, a trendoid, a straight, a gay, a tranny, a drunk, an addict or a deadbeat, if you don't have a ring on your finger or through your nose, your eyebrow, your nipple or your foreskin, if you don't dig hip-hop, bebop, blues, acid jazz, funk, rockabilly, rap, techno, jungle, ska, reggae, pop, house or classical, chances are Semaphore is not yet ready for you. Semaphore, you are so laid back, I'm sure there are days when everyone is so relaxed that no one in the suburb wakes up. <laughs> semaphore, you confuse me, summer by inviting me in for a swim, then you make me walk a mile just to get my thighs wet. You're a tea Semaphore but you tease others too. You let your jetty shrink each winter, and in summer, when half of South Australia have stubbed a toe on a boardwalk, no one wants to say they own it. You tease and you shame. You've teased so many old age pensioners by putting poker machines on Semaphore Road, but you've shamed yourself too, Semaphore. You have denied so many of your invalid pensioners a sporting chance at the Whizbang Centre, or is walking down Semaphore Road with your hand out considered to be cultural tourism. Maybe, Semaphore, you need to direct that question to the Liberal government. But why do these invalid pensioners ask for anything, Semaphore? Maybe fish patties and mashed potatoes, stale cakes and stale bread, cold showers and no soap, cold rooms in winter and hot box in summer, 
365 days a year are boring. Nothing too liberal about that lot. Semaphore, I came to you in the 60s when your pubs were full of wharfies and your road was frantic. Now the wharves are used for a little more than fishing. Your front bars are as empty as your churches and your road is frantic for other reasons. I saunter now and enjoy and say to you, Semaphore, I've got time to stop in your otherwise bland footpath and talk to Bobby and listen to his repetitive chatter. I've got time to stand outside of Larrikins and dance with Dorothy while she sings tiptoe through the tulips. I've got time to stop outside Flower Power Bakery and say good morning, gentlemen, to Wally and hear him reply, good morning, sir, and good morning to you too, young lady, to my four-year-old. And I've got time for Gerald, posted once again outside the federal and smacking his lips while waiting, waiting, waiting for enough to buy another can. And sure enough, as we draw near, he'll call out to my daughter, that's a lovely hat you're wearing today, my dear. You're a very good girl, aren't you? And I've got time to stop and let Bob Lumley kiss me on the cheek if he needs to. That is, if he hasn't got Tom the Greengrocer already, and that's about the end of the option plan for Bob. And I've got time to look up at the flag, fly to the Marcy RSL Club and be challenged to consider what other freedoms we are still fighting for. And I've got time too to look up at the Archangel watching over Semaphore Road from the Esplanade and I contemplate the comfort she might give to some with her outstretched wings. And I've had time strolling down Semaphore Road toward the Esplanade to recognise that the Chinese maple trees that sit in pairs along the median strip are weaker by the time they hit the coast, by the time they hit the edge, by the time they have no other place to go. That poem was written, I don't know how many years ago now, when your daughter was four. Early 90s. Yeah, well, the semaphore will have changed a lot since then. It has changed a lot since then, yeah. You still love it? Big one. You still love it, same way? Oh, I still love it. I'm, I'm, I live right on Semaphore Road. I'm looking out of my lounge room window now over Semaphore Road. So my, my lounge and my bedroom overlook uh, Semaphore Road. I live above St Vinnie's. And uh, I've been in the same place for 21 years. And uh, there's no, uh, they'll only take me out of here in a, a wooden box, you know. <laughs> uh, so top joint, you know. It doesn't matter how mad you are, you can exist in semaphore. And yeah, good to know, isn't it? Somewhere, somewhere for all, all of us to go if we need to. Exactly, exactly. And we're going to finish off now. Sorry about that before. Uh, with... Uh, Another poem from Waltzing with Jack Dancer, An Uncertain Future. Yeah, it's actually from, uh, not from, well, uh, yeah, it is from, you're right, sorry. <laughs> An Uncertain Future. I was sitting in my car opposite the Adelaide Magistrates Court, waiting on a change of lights when I first saw her. She was in her early 20s, had on a black sleeveless top and a denim miniskirt. Her arms and legs were heavily tanned and she wore strappy sandals. Her hair was bottle blonde. And as she crossed in front of me, blowing out a stream of blue cigarette smoke, I noticed her black roots complimented her chipped and broken front teeth. She was at least seven months pregnant. The lights changed. I moved off slowly into my own uncertain future. So when you sent me that poem, you said of it, we all create our own uncertainties. That's right. You know, I was a smoker. Like I started smoking at five years of age 
by the time I was 12, I was smoking two ounces of drum a week. By the time I was 14 and could buy Taylor Mage, I was smoking 20 to 30 a day. And I stopped smoking in 1990. I was about 80 a day at that stage. You know, I got cancer of the throat. <laughs> no great surprise. Mm. I created my own uncertainty. Right. Uh, you know, my brother died of, um, of cancer of the throat, but he also had cirrhosis of the liver. But he'd also be in the pub at 10 o'clock in the morning having his first pint. And, you know, he had 10 drink driving offences. So, you know, he created his own uncertainties too. We all create our own uncertainties by virtue of what we do in life. But you create your own futures too. Exactly, yeah. Both, both the uncertainty and the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're co-joined, aren't they? They're joined at the hip. That's it, that's it. And, uh, and you're busily publishing more books coming up. So you're... I certainly am. Wonderful. Uh, Street is a book of my, uh, my uh, memoir of my childhood. Uh, so stories from about five years of age to 18 years of age. Uh, and that'll be released just prior to Father's Day. A new book of poetry coming out in uh, February called Preparing for Business. And then a verse novella on the 1st of July next year, uh, which uh, will be a, 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 it is, it's an absolute winner. Uh, it's a cracker, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, Brad, but it's fucking great. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jeff. It's been wonderful to have you on. It's been uh, terrific to be with you too, David. Long may you run. Yeah. Uh, when the video is posted, it will include information on how to obtain copies of Jeff's books. Look out for that. Um, we'll be back next month with Judy Johnson on the theme of inheritance. Thank you very much, Jeff.